Well, it is so good to uh, see all of you today, this afternoon, on this bright, sunny, keyword sunny, afternoon. Uh, I had this moment this past week. As I sat in my house without electricity, and I started thinking about my first 10 weeks here in this lovely state of New Jersey. (laughs) The earthquake was one thing. I I had experienced an earthquake before in Vegas, right? Those things happen. Uh, Mother Nature acts and, you know, the earth responds. And so, but the thing is, is when I experienced that earthquake, all of you said, It never happens in New Jersey. I said, okay, fair enough. Then this happened called Hurricane Irene. And all of you, you know what you said to me? It never happens in New Jersey. I'm like, this is kind of strange. My first couple weeks here, things never happen. And then last Saturday hit. And uh, I was talking to one person. And uh, I said, man, that blizzard was, was horrible. He goes, oh, that wasn't a blizzard. I'm like, what do you call that? I mean, I call that a blizzard. I know I'm from Vegas, but that was like blizzard-like conditions. And I'm like, it's not even November yet. I mean, it's not even Halloween yet. And that happened. We spent four days without power. And uh, for some of you, you didn't lose power at all. And I'm really bitter, by the way, if that's you. And uh, for some of you, you just got it back yesterday. I had a lady after the last service come up to me, and she and her husband still do not have power. Still do not have power. Monday morning, I woke up, and our house was so cold that I, I mean, I literally thought that if I got a glass of water and threw it up in the air, it'd snow inside my house. It was that cold. And my loving, caring, thoughtful, considerate wife looked at me at 5.30 in the morning, Monday morning, and said, Honey, I love you, but I'm taking the kids, and I'm going to Pennsylvania. See ya. And she left down, left me with the dog. And uh, so it was me and the dog hanging out in the frigid house without power. And... Uh, so I'm not sure what to do with all this. Uh, ten weeks, three uh, massive natural disasters. I, I don't know. Is there some hidden volcano somewhere that's going to erupt? Which all of you will say, that never happens, Chris. So I, I just don't know what's going to come next. And I had one person walk up to me and said, no, seriously, Chris. I joked after Irene that I'm going to send you back to Vegas. But now I'm really going to send you back. And I said, well, thank you. That's love right there. But uh, it's great to see all of you today. And uh, as we got through last week, uh, we all kind of met as a team. We kind of had this, this thought of, you know, well, what do we do with last weekend? And we all as a team really felt like we couldn't, just, we couldn't just skip last week's topic. The topic was too important for us to talk about. And so we moved last week to this week, and then we're just going to cut, you know, another future week out of the Beatles series. Uh, but again, because we feel like what needs to be shared today is that, is that important? You know, Charlie said that, you know, when Can't Buy Me Love hit number one on April 4th, 1964, there's 14 Beatles songs in the top 100. Well, out of those 14 songs, the top five spots on that chart, one, two, three, four, five, were all Beatles songs. You think about that. The top five spots all were Beatles songs. You talk about the impact on culture, the impact on society. What this group did um, artistically, I don't think we'll ever see that again. I really don't. I really do not think we'll see that again. About a year after Can't Buy Me Love hit number one, uh, Paul McCartney 
had a, uh, a journalist come to him and asked this question. Now, there's always those points, and I don't mean to bag on, uh, on journalists, but you know, like, you know those journalists that ask the stupid question? You know, for instance, you know, that journalist after a football game where some team loses, kind of like last night. I heard that there was a team that a certain person named Rich really liked lost last night. Yes, Rich, it's the third service, and I'm still going after you. I had, I had such an amazing text. I typed on my phone. I was going to hit send to him after Alabama lost. And I just, I showed constraint. And I didn't hit send. I should have hit send. But you know that, that reporter that asked that stupid question to the losing coach? And they asked this question. Well, hey, coach, how does it feel to lose? You're like, Really? Out of all the questions you could ask me, you're asking me, how, how do you think it feels to lose? It feels horrible to lose, right? No one likes to, to lose. Well, this reporter comes up to Paul and asks this question. He goes, what's the true meaning of can't buy me love? I don't know. Let's think about the title for a second. Uh, I think it means that you can't buy love. Ah, there's the meaning. But Paul responds in this way. He goes, I, th- I think you can put any interpretation you want on anything. But when someone suggests that can't buy me love is about a prostitute, I draw the line. Can you imagine him in that moment when someone walked up to him and actually asked him that question? Hey, Paul, I was listening to your new song, Can't Buy, buy Me Love. It, is it about a prostitute? <laughs> right? Like, how absurd is that thought, right? But obviously someone had said that to him. But he went on in the same interview and he said the idea behind it was that all these material possessions are all very well, but they won't buy me what I really, really want. You see, what made the Beatles great is they understood and they were able to take life, just like you and I experience it, and were able to grasp concepts of what they were dealing with and what they were struggling with And to write songs about it. And they were at the peak of their profession. I mean, 14 songs on the top 100. All the fame, all the power, all the money. They had it all. And they write this very authentic song. They said, you know what? I still can't buy love. I still can't buy happiness. I still can't buy meaning. I still can't buy buy purpose. I still can't. With everything I've achieved, I can't buy that thing that solves that hole inside of me. It's the same hole you and I have that we try to fill with different things, isn't it? That hole of happiness, that hole of meaning, that hole that, that aches for something in there but we work really hard to try to fill it with all this stuff. And you know what? It really doesn't fill it, does it? So we work harder and make more money. And then we buy the people around us things because we feel like that we can buy things for people to make it okay. I mean, as parents, we do that with our kids. And probably for most parents in this room, 
If you haven't said this thought out loud, you've thought this thought, I'm doing all of this. I'm working this hard. I'm working all these hours so I can provide for my kids. So I can provide for the best school. So I can provide for my kids like I didn't have growing up. So my kids could experience all the things that I wish I could experience as a kid. And so you put this veil around your work when all your kids really want, all your wife or your spouse, your husband really wants, is your time, both quality and quantity. MTV did this survey. They surveyed 13 to 18-year-olds. And uh, several things they discovered, but one was this, that 66% of all the teenagers that they polled or they surveyed, they discovered, 66 said that they were very happy or somewhat happy, which I have spent almost 20 years working with teenagers. And that shocked me that that number was that high, that they were very happy or somewhat happy. Then the next percentage, they found that 16% said that they were neither happy or unhappy. They were kind of just in that threshold. So 82% of all teenagers, 13 to 18 year olds, would say that if this was like the line of happiness, whatever that means, and I know that's kind of vague, but 82% of them were right above or way above that line. That shocked even me. But then they asked this question. What one thing in life makes you the most happy? Now, if you've been around teenagers at all, at all, right? Probably the things you think they would say, right? Are all like material possession type of things. This is what they uncovered. And in the research, there's this huge list of them. The top three, though, were this. At 20% said family and spending time with family. 20% of them put number one, what makes them the most happy, spending time with family. Number two, 15%, spending time with friends. And number three at 11%, spending time with loved ones. You know where money fell on the list? 1%. What they really want, what my kids really want, is time with me. Both quality and quantity. In the Declaration of Independence, these famous words were written. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Isn't that our pursuit? I found this one definition of pursuit. It's not in your, your, your modern dictionary. It was one of those dictionaries. It was several hundred years old. But they define pursuit this way. Chase with hostility. Isn't that kind of cool thought? But isn't that what we're doing? We're chasing almost with this hostile spirit. This unreachable, untangible happiness thing in our lives. Because there's a void that we know, we feel, 
we experience it, it's there, it makes us ache and groan, and we're trying to fill it with all this other stuff. Now today's message, I I hope I can be as clear as I can be with this. Today's message is not about you not working hard. I hope you work your tail off. I hope that you can climb that ladder. I hope that you can be the best at what you do. I hope you set the standard in your industry. I really do. And I think that's God honoring. And I also hope that as you work hard and you climb that ladder and you become the best in what you do, I hope you're rewarded financially well. I really do. That's God honoring. So this, today's message is not about that. If you walk out of here today thinking, wow, man, he's just banging on my work ethic, and man, I've really become successful, and maybe I should... No, no, no. I hope you are successful. I really do. And I hope you're rewarded financially for your success, for your hard work. But here's a question. What are you pursuing in life? Is it that? Is that your number one pursuit? Because you're trying to fill a void in your life? If that's it, it'll never fill it. You'll never feel it. There's this quote I found, and it's attributed to Albert Einstein, but you know, people are not sure if he said it or not. But here's a quote, which I thought, I mean, it just made me stop and pause all week on this thought. He, he said, not everything that can be counted counts, and not everything that counts can be counted. Let me ask you this question. What do you count? And does it really, really count? Does it? I had a mentor. I was in my early, early 20s. And this is probably something that you've all heard before. But this mentor simply looked at me one day and he said to me, he said, Chris, I can tell you what you value, what's important to you in seconds by looking at two things. What's on your calendar? And looking at your bank account. Where you spend your time and where you spend your money. Because within seconds, I could look at your calendar and your bank account and tell you exactly what you value and what's driving you. We're going to look at a guide today. His name is Solomon. And uh, Solomon was a king in the Old Testament. And he wasn't just any normal king. He was probably the wealthiest king, the wisest king ever to live. And uh, I, we could spend a lot of time kind of getting into all the things he possessed and how powerful and rich. But I just want to give you a snapshot into his life so you can kind of understand when I say uh, he was wealthy, what that really means. I, I found this passage in First Kings chapter 4, and they outlined the daily food requirements for his palace. What it took to feed him and everyone within his palace. And this was on the list. Daily food requirements, 150 bu- bushels of choice flour, 300 bushels of, of meal, 10 oxen from the fattening pens, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep or goats, 
deer, gazelles, roe deer, and choice poultry every day. They ate good, right? They didn't pull back. But every day, that's what his palace had to provide to take care of everyone in his service. He had 4,000 stalls for his chariot horses. He had 12,000 horses. And each year, he received 25 tons of gold. Do some simple math on that. Put in today's dollars. Over a trillion dollars? Not only was he wealthy because he was king, he was, a, he was a smart, smart businessman. He had a fleet of trading ships. And once every three years, it says that the ships returned, and they returned with these items. Loaded with gold, silver, ivory, and then this is hilarious, right? Silver, gold, ivory, and apes and peacocks. <laughs> is it crazy? You're like, and we got, like, I'm not sure how they got the apes on the ship. That was really going to be interesting for me to think about, right? Apes and peacocks. What's the Bible trying to tell us? They were the exotic gifts, the things no one had ever seen before, the unattainable he had. I mean, where he lived in that region of the world, no one probably had ever seen an ape or a peacock. And they brought these gifts back from the corners of the world. He had it all. And then 1 Kings chapter 4. Not only did he have all this wealth, all this power. It says that God gave Solomon very great wisdom and understanding and knowledge. As vast as the sands of the seashore. In fact, his wisdom exceeded that of all the wise men of the east. In the wise men of Egypt. So we come to this book. It's called Ecclesiastes. And uh, I hate really to call it a book. Because it's more like his personal journal. Solomon sat down. And he started just really navigating through this thing called life. He was at the pinnacle. The apex of life. He could not want for anything more. He had anything you could imagine. And he started facing reality and realized that, you know what, he had everything, yet there was this hole in his heart. This thing that was unattainable that he was trying to grasp for, and he couldn't get his hands on it. It couldn't fill that void. And so he starts writing this kind of journal of his thoughts, his emotions, what he was navigating through. And so in chapter 2, we get kind of this quick glimpse on, on what he was kind of struggling with, wrestling through. And he starts off with this. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. Now, I'm not sure for Solomon what the good things in life were. I'm not sure for him what he thought were good things. But I started thinking through what the good things for me in life are and, and think through for you what those good things might be. For my wife, which the last two services, uh, she hasn't been here. So I, I haven't had to be real, real careful on how I'm going to say this. But she's now here. And so, uh, so, honey, forgive me. For my wife, one of those good things in life is a spa. 
She loves those spa things. And she's always trying to get me to go to like a spa thing with her. And I do most things my wife asks me to do. Right, honey? Yes? Okay, good. Moving on. I do most things that she asks me to do. But when it comes to the spa thought and the thought that someone's going to like rub my feet, I can't get my mind around it. I just cannot. I, I, I'm not going to find enjoyment to it. I don't. I mean, no one wants to touch my feet. I don't want to touch your feet. I don't, I, I don't care. I mean, the thought of you're going to take my nasty socks off and there's going to be, it, it's just disgusting to me. And so she keeps on trying to get me to go on a spa date with her. And I'm like, honey, anything, I'll do anything. But that I can't do. But for her, that's a good thing in life. For me yesterday, I had a friend, he emailed me and said, Hey, I want to take you mountain biking. I was like, awesome. And, uh, I've never uh, mountain biked here in New Jersey, and uh, I mean, there's uh, mountains in Vegas, but the mountains of Vegas are totally different than mountains here in New Jersey, and uh, man, I I rode up a mountain, and there's like thistles and boulders and trees and roots, and then I had to go down the other side, and I crashed, I have bruises everywhere, but it was so much fun. Some of you right now are like, yeah, that's awesome. Some of you are like, really? That was a fun day for you? Yeah, it was great. What's a good thing for your life? What are those good things? And Solomon said, you know what? I've tried those good things. And they're meaningless. So he goes on. He said, so I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? He surrounded himself with, I don't know, court jesters. Or maybe he just surrounded himself with people that made him laugh. I've simply uh, categorized people in my life. This is just honest. right? There's either life givers right? They give you life or people that suck the life out of you. You know what I mean? Right? And right now you're thinking through those people that suck the life out of you, right? That, that's the first name that comes to your head. Not the person that gives you life. You're like that person, right? When they call you, you're like, no, they're calling me. Or you hear their voice in your office. You're like, oh, they're coming this way, right? And you want to hide. You, you revert back to second grade. How, how, how do I hide? How do I hide? Right? And, and Solomon's saying, you know what? I surround myself with people that gave me life. Verse three. After much thought. Oh, this is great. After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. Now, let's go into this hypothetical world. I'm not, I'm not saying I've ever done this or experienced this, but I've read on the internet that, that if you drink too much, right? You hit the cheer zone. You know what I mean? Like one glass of wine doesn't make you cheery, right? One shot of tequila doesn't make you cheery. One glass, right? Somewhere around shot number three or four, that's where he was at. So much so that guess what he said? He said, and while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. He was wasted, drunk, obliterated, however you want to translate it, right? Which I still think is funny that he's like still searching for wisdom while he's drunk. But then he framed this thought by saying this, in this way, I try to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. You know what he kind of said? was, you know what? I lowered myself to the commoner because you know what? I'm a king. I have everything I want. And I looked at all these other people outside my palace. And you know what? 
They're drinking and partying and having a good time. And maybe that would give me meaning and happiness. Verse 4. I also try to find, uh, find meaning by building huge homes for myself. We don't do that, right? My first apartment, 700 square feet. My wife and I thought it was a palace. We had two bathrooms. We had a guest bedroom without a bed. It was amazing. Like, we're like, we have an extra room. What do we do with it? I don't know. We have it. But within moments of being in our apartment, you know what we started thinking about and talking about? We can't wait for the day until we owned a house. So we finally were able to own, uh, buy a house, and we over doubled our square footage. It was a palace. We had two and a half ba- bathrooms. I had three toilets to choose from. It was amazing, <laughs> right? I mean, that's just great. And guess what? Within moments of moving to the house, guess what we started thinking about? Oh, we can't wait until. Because there's this thought there that if we can get that one possession, if we can get to that one certain kind of unattainable height in what society says is good and acceptable, if we can get there, then it will fill that void inside of us. And Solomon said, you know what? I try to find meaning by building huge homes and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks. And get this, more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. You know what he said? I'm the greatest king ever. I'm the most powerful king ever. I'm the wealthiest king ever. I'm the most famous king ever. I have it all. No one is greater than me. And I still have a hole in my heart that's not being filled. I collected great sums of silver and gold and treasure of of many kings and provinces. I hired uh, wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I'm not sure if you know what a concubine is, but the Greek word concubine means, it's two words. It's with and to lie together. So you can just imagine what a concubine is. It's not for cuddling. And the word many, he had 300 of them. I guess many could fit that category. And he ends the thought with this. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. Like chasing the wind, there was nothing really worthwhile any, anywhere. Like chasing the wind. 
Isn't that what we're all chasing? Right? We, we can feel the wind. We can look up in the trees and, and see the trees move because of the wind. But you can't grasp onto the wind. You can't contain the wind. You can't hold on to it. And Solomon came to this place in his life where he realized what he was chasing, what he was going after, what he was trying to grasp in his life. It's like the wind. So let me ask you this question. Does what you count really count? Does what you count really count? We all have one life, right? There's no pause button. There's no slow motion button. There's no rewind. We have one life. question is, does what you count really count? Is what you're pursuing ever going to fill the void? Is what you're pursuing ever going to bring true meaning and purpose to your life? Or is it like chasing the wind? This week, challenge is simple. 30 minutes of your time, just you. Open up your calendar. Look at the last six months of your life. Look at the last month of your life. Face reality. Where are you spending your time? What's really important to you? What are you valuing? Look at your bank account. What's important to you? What are you valuing? Really look at your life. You can't afford not to take 30 minutes. Maybe, maybe it would take you five. But face, face the reality of your life. It's your life. It's your one life. And that's what I want you to do. You don't have to solve it. Maybe, maybe you're already there. Maybe you're three steps ahead of me. But maybe it's just the beginning to face it. And that's what I want you to do. Just give it to God. Say, God, okay, I've got to figure this out. I'm pursuing something, God, that's not attainable. Because what God wants to do in you and through you, what God wants to do with your life, and start a, start a conversation with him. Start doing what Solomon was doing. Face reality. And then start searching for what that really means for you. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for today. And uh, I know for everyone in this room, we struggle with time, we start, struggle with the pressures of life, and we struggle with work and family and relationships and things we like to do, and we struggle through trying to 
fit it all in and we struggle through trying to to get our arms around it all and it just seems like the pressures crank more and more is asked of us and uh but lord i do pray i mean it's it's the one life that you've given us and uh, um lord i just pray i pray that everyone here including myself will face reality this week that will look and truly look and really through new lenses look at what we value what we're pursuing because those two things will reflect exactly that so Lord I just pray I, I pray that you'll give us strength and only just the strength that Lord you will help us navigate through what that all means you know pray Amen